the passage read this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, my mind immediately switches to the great concert hall with a symphony orchestra on the stage. And I think about that. I love symphony music. Can you imagine what a symphony would be like if all of the instruments played the same note? Most of the instruments would be uh, superfluous. But what fantastic music, harmony, blessing comes when 100 musicians each following his or her score playing different instruments under the direction of the maestro. And I think of that when I hear this passage of scripture. It's a, a tiny illustration, I believe, of what Paul is talking about here. And so I, I want that to be kind of in your minds as we go through this passage this morning. As far as I'm concerned, as a pastor, there's no portion of Scripture <coughs> excuse me, more important in the Word of God than this one. I had breakfast with three men this morning who for long years have been personal friends of mine. And we talked about many things. But one of the things I shared again with them was uh, the, how do I describe it? Exciting, that's not a big enough word. Uh, almost, uh, well, almost, I don't know what to say. Exciting. I guess I wanted to say ecstatic. Thought. As I listened last night to a little uh, business of the church before the service and uh, heard in the slides that were shown the fact that the membership of Highland Park Presbyterian Church is nearly 8,000. Now, what we talked about at breakfast was this. We tend to think about the influence of the church, a local congregation in a city, in terms of what goes on inside the building. Of course, there's mission to the outside called benevolence. And any true Church of Christ is ministering, beginning right outside its uh, boundaries to the ends of the earth. But the real influence of any local congregation is programs in the building. But when that congregation is scattered between Sundays and penetrates all of the institutions of a metropolitan area, and the measure of what goes on in the building with its program is happening between Sundays. So the influence of the Highland Park Presbyterian Church is not just its very efficient and effective pastor and staff with all of the programs, but it's how those programs are equipping the people of God for the real work of the church, for the real work of ministry, when those people are in their homes and their neighborhoods and their social circles and their clubs and their jobs between Sundays. In the 23 years that I pastored the Fourth Presbyterian Church, that to me was the incredible incentive to know that every Sunday morning I had the privilege of nurturing a group of people in the Word of God who were going to be the work of the all week long, only all over metropolitan Washington, all over the United States, and in many places of the world. And I will say, for my ministry, 
then they would be ministering for Christ as they penetrated all of these institutions and so forth. That's the real measure of the effectiveness of the congregation. And uh, that's the real influence Thank God for strong churches and strong programs. But if we think of the influence of the church in terms of the pastoral staff and the program, as a part of the establishment, then we, we have very little truth of what God is really doing. Just imagine the influence of 8,000 people as they scatter and wherever each is, Not just when they're saying something religious, they're doing something religious, but in everything they do. In the New Testament, every believer was in full-time service with Jesus Christ. Not just the preachers and the evangelists. In the New Testament, every believer is in full-time service for Jesus Christ. A Christian lawyer is in full-time service. And his calling is to practice law for Christ. And so a doctor and a dentist and a teacher, a construction person and a business executive, whatever. If we're truly Christ, we are all in full-time service Christ. Well, that isn't in my notes, but I won't charge anything extra to that. I want to begin this morning with a review so we can set this passage of Scripture in the context of our thinking since Friday evening. First, the fullness of time and the last days began with the first advent of Jesus Christ in the history when he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. The last days time began then, 2,000 years ago. We have been living in the fullness of time and in the last days in terms of the economy of God for 2,000 years. God's plan for this final phase, and we don't know how long this final phase will last, it was 2,000 years from the time God gave his promise to Abraham, which represents, so far as the record is the institution of God's redemptive purpose, and it was in the mind of God long before that, of course. 2,000 years from the promise in Genesis 12, which represented the initiation of God's redemptive purpose in history. So when that promise began to be fulfilled, or was fulfilled literally in Jesus Christ, and now is being worked out for nearly 2,000 years since, longer until this final phase is consummated with the return of Christ only the Father knows. As I was working on these notes yesterday and last night, the thought occurred to me that often I used to think, and I think many do, that God kind of had two plans, like plan A and plan B, so that if plan A didn't work, plan B would. He'd, he'd, he'd set in motion so plan A was Genesis 1 and 2. Plan B represented a, an aberration that God didn't anticipate, so he had to quick, up, quick think up an emergency plan. No, that's not the way it is. I can't explain this, and I can't understand this. But God had only one plan, which included creation, human rebellion recorded in Genesis 3 and its consequences through Genesis 11, that, uh, and his remedy for that uh, rejection or rebellion uh, in the promise he made to Abraham, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God had only, God had only one plan. His plan was to create a people in his image for fellowship 
or partnership with himself forever in a perfect environment. And that's the prospect for the people of God. Let me just uh, direct your attention to a couple of verses right at the beginning of the, of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to read at verse 26. Now this is in the eternity of the past. How many hundreds or thousands or millions of years, nobody knows. Because those are meaningless in terms of a God who is eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. But whenever, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them in, uh, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. The reason I made a mistake there is because I like to put those right together. Let me read that again the way I like to read it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. You don't see the image of God in male or in female, but in male, female, union and relationship. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now there's God's plan. And uh, rebellion in Genesis 3 does not constitute an interruption. Was Don't ask me to explain. Fine. But God had only one plan. There's a very interesting verse in chapter 2, which I think is unspeakably significant. Listen to this verse. The fifth verse. I'll begin in the middle of the fourth. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. Now listen to this. And there was no man to till the ground. There you see that beautiful partnership. God created the earth, but it was not going to produce plants, herbs, etc., until there was a man to fill it. And then in the 15th verse of the second chapter, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to fill it and keep it. Now this is God's plan. Perfect human beings who bear the image of God and who are God's partners in ruling the universe. That's what he's getting us ready for. That's the fact. Let me read from Ephesians 2. Beginning at the fourth verse. But God out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised us up together with Christ, and made us sit with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There was a science professor at Eton College when I was a student there, and uh, we, we became very close friends. And uh, I, I often heard this man, Dr. Holly Taylor, uh, share with us 
a vision he had. He would uh, insist he was not dogmatic about this, but that this was something that he could imagine. And he would take this seventh verse of Ephesians 2, and he imagined that when this particular economy of God was completed, that is to say, when the purpose for which God created man, recorded in Genesis 2, was completed at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we were in the new heaven and the new earth, then that we would then be spectators of God created another universe of some kind, and would use that universe however long it would last, a thousand years or ten thousand years or a million years, and all the time we'd be looking on as spectators and learning something else about God. And then, when that one was completed, then he'd create another one, and we'd be learning something about God. When you stop to think about it, heaven or perfection is not static. We're not going to be statues. We're going to be living, human, feeling, with immortal bodies. And we'll be learning about God, knowing more and more and more about God, and, and because God is an infinite personality, the church infinity. Which is still with you. <laughs> Maybe I'll just try to review. <laughs> Jesus inaugurated the final phase of this redemptive purpose of God when he, when he inhabited that body born of a virgin in Bethlehem for 33 years on the earth. He continues the final phase, that is, the fullness of time, the last phase phase against the purpose of God, following his ascension in his body, the church. The second act, so to speak, of the final phase of God's redemptive purpose was inaugurated at Pentecost, the first phase in Bethlehem, the second phase in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Now the act so-called Acts of the Apostles, really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, is the sacred record of the beginning of the second part of the final phase, and the book of Acts continues to be written to this present day, and will continue until the final act of the final phase of Christ. this morning is a spirit-breathed description of the second act of the final phase of God's redemption. The first act was the birth of Jesus and his life on earth. The second act began with Pentecost and continues to Christ comes back again. Christ returns as the third act. So, this is the description of the second act of the final phase of God's redemption. <laughs> Paul begins by stating his purpose in writing, first three verses. Now concerning spiritual gifts, and by the way, the word uh, gift in the Greek is charismata. Charis is the Greek word for grace. So properly called, these are gifts of grace. Remember that grace means unmerited favor. You don't earn a gift. You don't. You aren't given a gift because you deserve it. And we'll see a little more about that shortly. But these are charismata, from which you get charismatic, of course. Charismata, gifts of grace. Now Paul is writing concerning these charismata. I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were heathen, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you may have been moved. Therefore, I want you to understand that no 
anyone speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You never recognize Jesus as Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That's just as God. Remember when Peter made his great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus commanded his court and said, Blessed are you, Son of God. Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. That is, you haven't come to this by a rational or logical process. But the Father in heaven has revealed it. You can only recognize Jesus as Lord by a revelation of God, an apocalypse of God, an unveiling of me. Then he describes in verses. 4 through 11, the divine strategy. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires, inspires them all to everyone. So the whole triune God, the Trinity, the Godhead, is involved in the charismata, Paul says. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's tremendously important. You hear that a lot, by the way, uh, in, in the, the, the political life of the United States. You don't hear it as much as you used to hear it. You don't hear it like you heard it in the, in the early days of the United States. That everything ought to be for the common good. I use it a great deal in my prayers in the Senate because I don't hear it very much anyplace else. Those senators are there for the common good. Their decisions are to be for the common good. That was written into our Constitution. Remember how the Constitution begins? We the people of the United States. Not we the 100 senators of the United States. Are not we the Supreme Court? Are not we the President? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, etc., etc., etc. That's what this nation is all about. Well, I better stop that or I'll get excited. But Paul teaches, the Spirit breathed into Paul this. Understanding this illumination about the charismata, to each is given the manifestation, that's a good word, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are inspired by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. Now, I'm very sure that those gifts that are listed there are not exhaustive. You have a list in Ephesians 4. You have a short list in Romans 12. But they're not exhaustive. They're only representative. So there you have the divine strategy. The distribution of gifts to each member of the body which represents the manifestation of the Spirit in that body. Then Paul describes the unity and diversity of the body. Now please notice, unity is not uniformity, which is one of the reasons I mistrust bureaucracy, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or in the Church of Jesus Christ, because it always moves toward uniformity and destroys individuality. Why I have a tremendous problem with you name it, any one of the evangelistic methods 
that we hold thousands of seminars so we can get everybody just as just as uniform as possible in communicating this message that ought to be communicated to each of us in the way that's natural for us. I really have a problem with it. All of this how-to business, and there are hundreds of books written on how-to, everything today, that's part of the way we've been enculturated or infected by our culture. All of these how-to books, all of these methods, they all work for uniformity, the very opposite of diversity. So we all say it the same way and do it the same way and so Contrary to what we read here. Unity is not uniformity. When you destroy the diversity, you destroy the unity. To destroy diversity is to destroy unity. Imagine a great masterpiece in front of us here with all of its colors and hues and shapes painted by the master. And I say, well, I don't like all of those different colors. I like uniformity. So give me a brush and one can of paint and I want to cover it all with one color. Well, that's the end of the master. Isn't it? You wouldn't go to an art museum if you just looked at great frames that just had one color in them. You can look through that with a paint catalog. Now, here's the situation. Here's the situation. How can a God who is infinite in being and nature, in all of his qualities, how can a God who is infinite in being and nature express himself or manifest himself in human flesh? That's the resolution by dwelling in and working through unnumbered humans as varied as their number to accept God's fellowship and submit to God's rule in their lives. Each distinct, unique person manifesting one or more qualities of God's infinite personality. <laughs> I, the reason I'm hesitating here is because I, I can almost feel angry when I, when I think about how one person looks at another and says, oh, I wish I were like her or like him, or I wish I could do what he does or she does. You know, you are the only you God gave to us. One friend of mine says, God does not make duplicates, only originals. You are a divine original. And if you keep trying to be somebody else or like somebody else, you are depriving history of you as God created you unique from all of us. Well, here's how it works. Verses 4 through 7, which I've read. Now, would you notice, please, the sovereignty of God in the charismata. First of all, verse 11. All these charismata are inspired by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he, the Holy Spirit, wills. 
understands by the illumination or the God-breathed wisdom of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is sovereign in the distribution of the gift. He and gifts you as He wills. Now then don't complain about your gifts because you are what you are in the wisdom of God. Secondly, verse 18. As it is... Then don't complain about your gift because you are what you are in the wisdom of God. Secondly, verse 18. As it is, God arranged the organs in the body, each one of them as He chose. God is sovereign in the arrangement. You aren't where you are by accident. You aren't in this congregation or whatever congregation you're in. You're not in CBS. You're not in the family or the neighborhood where you are by accident. God has sovereignly arranged all of the relationships in which you're involved. Verse 24. God has so adjusted the body, giving the greater honor to the interior part and so on, we'll come to that later, that it is God who does the adjusting in the body. As he brings people together in all of the relationships, in all of the social entities of life. So Paul makes it very clear, the Holy Spirit breathes this wisdom into him, that God is sovereign in giving you the gifts you are, in placing you where you are in the body, and in adjusting you, and that adjustment process is on Now look at the beautiful interdependence that Paul describes here. Interdependence. Interdependence. Or to put it in simpler words, we need each other. I cannot get along without you, or you without me. Now, we don't see that out of in Washington, D.C. We live in Dallas, Texas. But as God sees, we need each other. Verses 12 and 13. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is in Christ. For, the one spirit, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You know, I can get along without a little finger. I imagine I could. I've seen people who did study in the same. Then he makes it clear, verses 14 through 17, that each member of the body is important. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that will not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, so would be the hearing. If the whole body were an ear, so would be the sense of smell. So you see, is the evil in comparing one another. You weren't meant to be like each other. You were meant to be different. I can remember, I have to tell a story just a person now. <clears throat> I was in Kansas City, and often I'd go into a little restaurant. They didn't have fast food restaurants in those days, but it was a very good restaurant. It was just a counter, really, and there's no booze. And one of the things that uh, interested me about that restaurant, which was always crowded, was just watching the, the pictures of the do their work. And one day, as I sat in that restaurant, a woman came in with the most incredible hat you ever saw in your life. I don't know how to describe it, but that was like a pillow. It was white and it was fluffy, but it was huge. And she sat down at the counter. Well, of course, she attracted a competitive attention with that hat. There was hardly a room on either side of her for somebody to sit down. But finally, everything returned to normal. And you won't believe it. But in about 15 minutes, Jim walked another woman to the identical one. And you know, you could feel the tension in that little <laughs> Now, I, I chuckle about those things until one time I went to a party and I ran into a man who had the same tie I had. And I was a little self-conscious about it. Now, isn't that interesting? We like to be different. Not peculiar, but different. In what we wear, the way we dress. Or distinctive, to use another word, is perhaps a better word. And yet, in so many ways, we try to be like this guy. And destroy the Bible. And will you notice something else? I like to think of this as the inferiority complex in the body itself. Well, I'm just a hand, I don't belong to the body. Uh, I'm just a ear. I don't belong to the body. No, the body needs the hand and the body needs the ear. As much as it needs the eye. Each is important. Then we see the superiority complex in the body, beginning with verse 19. If all were a single organ, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eyes cannot say, for the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot get along without each other, as God says. But the fear that God doesn't leave us all. So what we begin to see as we look into this, this rest of this passage, how utterly others we think in the way God says. You know, Isaiah says in the 56th chapter, I believe it is, My ways are not your ways, except the Lord, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. I have an associate in Washington, D.C., and I often hear him say, You know, when you want to solve a problem, just figure out the best way to do it that you can think of, and do it exactly opposite your father doing his last work. I'm disturbed by the fact, for example, that uh, we hear so much by evangelicals today in opposition to secular humanism, or just humanism without the secular in front of it. You hear about that so much. But oh, how humanistic we are in so many ways. Instead of getting that direction. No, the eye doesn't say to the hand, I don't need you, the eye needs to Listen, anything you do as a discipline spiritually that makes you think you're superior to someone else, 
is the wrong thing to do. If it's producing consumption, it's superiority, you better look up. My favorite devotional writer, Ivo Chamber, says, when we're really growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, all our progress is in humility. He also says, never allow the thought, I'm of no use for our hand, you certainly of no use for your hand. Now listen to what Paul says. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, and here it is, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I have learned as a pastor for 40 years that the strong need the weak much more than the weak need the strong. The strong need the weak more than the weak need the strong. That's in God. Well, he goes on. And those parts of the body which we think less honorable, we invest with a greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not reflect. See, that's exactly the opposite of the way we think in our culture. There was a woman, she's now in heaven. You may have heard about her. I can't even remember her name. But God called her to a ministry of intercession. She was a Los Angeles woman. And wherever Billy Graham was having a crusade, she would rent a room in a, an economical place in that city, and she would go there all during the crusade and spend her whole time interceding for Billy in the crusade. With the ministry. Wherever Billy went, he took a room and spent the whole time upholding Billy and the team and the crusade and death. Now, I never saw her written up in any of the magazines or newspapers, but I have an idea when we see as God sees, we'll discover that she's probably more responsible for the effectiveness of a bit of grand ministry in Billy Graham. Now that's an exaggerated statement, of course. But here was a hidden away ministry that when God came, was a tremendous important, fact, an indispensable ministry. And Billy knows about this woman, and I heard her talk about that earth. And he kind of heard of the fear go to heaven. But there are probably many others like that that we still haven't heard about. All of the unseen, unseen, unknown ministries for Christ that from that standpoint are the good ministries compared to those that we give so much credit to. Then look at the Wizard results from this sovereign arrangement of God. Notice how Paul says God has so adjusted the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior part. One, that there be no discord in the body. Two, but that the members may have the same care for one another. I love that. Caring for one another. In our services in the you know, first church in Washington, we had a time in the morning service when I would say to the congregation, let's go to prayer. Now let me ask you just to reach out and touch someone with you. Don't be embarrassed to touch them. Don't be embarrassed by touch. But think of that touch as a connection that God's love will go through you to the one you touch. And then pray for the one you touch. 
few moments of silence as the people were still. One of the unforgettable letters I received was from, from a widow. And she said, I just can't thank you enough for that part of the service. She said, I've been a widow for so many years, she didn't tell me how many. She said, nobody ever touched it. Nobody ever took it. Nobody ever touched it. Nobody ever says I love you. Until I come to the first step. And she said, I can't wait to get there someday. And she went on with expressions of appreciation. I want to tell you a few stories that I told Lady Jessica, I think it was the last day that I brought her. But it's two stories. One is a Latin child of Florida. <laughs> had a little grandson born to his daughter. Four months premature. Obviously, the baby that weighed less than a pound and a half was put in the incubator. And it looked like it was missing fabric. But one day after Sunday, the doctor called the family and said, I want you all to come to the hospital. The baby isn't going to last much longer. So they all gathered the family, the father and the mother and the sisters there they were around the incubator. The baby was blue and cold. And the mother said, couldn't I just touch him before we leave? Of course, said the doctor. They took the cover off. The mother touched the baby. Immediately, warmth came into the body and the color came. And that baby is a healthy little boy now. Yeah. Another time. Another time. Notice this exquisite result when each of us is in peace or his place. That there be no discord in the body, but that the members of the same care one another. Somebody may be sitting beside you this morning. It has a tremendous purpose. To be going from the south, to be a child with one of those, to be financial difficulties, to be literally physical or emotional trouble or someone much love to and suffer or just for having surgery and whatever. And you don't know that, and they're not going to tell you. But that is, we just love one another. We care for one another. Not only be a touch of the other sisters, a smile, a greeting. This is how it works, this marvelous, redemptive plan of God and history. 
This is what he's doing with you as his people. On the authority of God's word, I know that each of you has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. And each of you is right where God wants you to be. And you're the kind of a person God wants you to be. I don't mean you're perfect. But you see, as we, as each of us, accept God's love and fellowship and submit to the rule of the Holy Spirit within, then God is manifesting His beauty, His love, His grace, His mercy to us. All of the time, most of the time, we don't even know it. We don't have to know it. All we have to know is that we guide the relationship with God. But I want to read, you can tell how much I use the season for it, but as a Bible here. I want to read just four verses from the season four. Paul has said here that when Christ descended, he gave gifts to men. Now here's one of the lists of gifts. Some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. But those who were so gifted, would equip the whole body of Christ for ministry. Then he says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, I guess I should say personhood, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then he has a little negative uh, statement here, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness and deceitful lives. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Oh, I think You know, you can use truth like I said now. I've watched people and their desire to witness put people over the head with truth. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in the Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes godly growth and appears with suffering. That is the each part. You're one of the equals of the season You're as important to the body of Christ as Billy Graham. Did you hear that? In the economy of God, you, where you are, where you are, as you are, are as important to the body of Christ very event of purpose and history of his religion. Now the blue, I just feel it, in the book. And then Jesus, the visit of disciples on the evening of his betrayal and the rest, he filed and crucified. I give you a new command. If you love one another, I will love you. We are. By this, your love for one another, you will love more. If you are not not by your theology, not by your orthodoxy. the first Presbyterian church in 1958, I have been out of the past for 11 years to convince the pastor, devoting myself to a ministry with men to which God has called me. I didn't even want to go to that church. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't think I'd be a good pastor. But I knew God wanted me. I hadn't been in the church very long until I began to be aware of 
fact that I didn't even know how to be a pastor. I didn't have any programs. I hadn't come to the church with a bunch of programs. All I've been doing for 11 years is meeting with men at their convenience in terms of time and place without an agenda. I didn't have an agenda. I went through some arguments. And one of the things God said to me in my life in the world was this, my son, why don't you just love the people? And let them love one another and pray that you'll be a church that will have a reputation for love. And I accepted that and I shared it with the people. And I prayed that I'd love them and that they'd love one another. And that's what the church became. And most of the people that joined the 4th Presbyterian Church in the 23 years I was there, when they were asked to give their testimony, they did not say, well, I feel like this church will be the church for me. Or what a wonderful cry you have, or a tremendous youth program. Most of the people were saved. And I came here. Father in heaven, your word is very clear about this matter we've been talking about this morning. There is not a person in this room who is not vitally important to your time, your redemptive purpose. Help each of us. A quick time to be like somebody else. A quick compelling ourselves with us. To accept ourselves as infinite value in the wonderful plan of God and in the truth that we created us to do. But thanks for it. Thank you very